When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. It's an absolute joke. And guys, we're going to win this thing. I promise you we're going to win it because we haven't done a damn thing at all. Oh, Eric, you're not paying attention. You've already lost, remember, in September when the judge ruled that you and your brother and your daddy lied for years on your company's financial statements. This trial, it's really just about penalties. Also tonight, President Biden visits grieving families in Lewistown, Maine, as we learn more about missed warning signs before the gunman killed 18 people. I'm Jason Johnson in for Joy Reid, and we begin tonight with another volatile day in the $250 million civil fraud trial against the Trump crime family and their company. Today, a New York judge ruled that a limited gag order on Donald Trump should also apply to his attorneys after he said they made inappropriate marks about his principal law court. Judge Arthur Ngoran's order said that Christopher Keis, Robert, Christopher Robert, and Alina Haba, lawyers for the former president and his adult sons, are, quote, prohibited from making any public statements in or out of court that refer to any confidential communications in any form between my staff and me. That is legalese for keep my name and my staff's name out your mouth. Failure to abide by this directive shall result in serious sanctions, and Gorn warned. The ruling came after Eric Trump returned for a second day of testimony in the civil fraud suit. Eric acknowledged that he was aware of the Trump Organization's statements of financial condition as far back as 2013, 10 years ago, after repeatedly denying knowledge of them. After court adjourned, he ripped state attorney Letitia James to reporters taking lines straight from his father's racist playbook. What New York State's trying to do with my father is truly awful. I've never seen anything like it. We have an unbelievable company. We have some of the best assets anywhere in the world. They've dragged Don and I and Yvonne into it as collateral damage. They only want our names in this thing because it sensationalizes their case. We've done absolutely nothing wrong. We have a better company than they could have ever imagined. Letitia James' office has argued that Trump's children participated in a scheme to falsely inflate their company's assets to secure more favorable loans and insurance policies. Remember, the judge has already found that Donald Trump and his two sons engage in persistent fraud. This trial will determine what financial fines or other punishments Trump will face. That's it. It's the case that hits closest to home, and not just because it involves Trump's kids. It targets Trump's entire image, built over decades as a symbol of wealth and power. So expect to see hot flashes of Trumpian anger in the coming days. Donald Trump, as well as his daughter Ivanka Trump, are expected to testify next week. Joining me now is NBC's Adam Reese, who was in the courtroom today. Adam, great to talk to you. Um, I, I'm going to ask you this up front, because this is the thing that gets me about, about some of these trials, uh, certainly with Eric Jr. What is he attempting to do here? Because it seems like he doesn't understand that he's already been found guilty. It seems like he's trying to relitigate something that's already been taken care of. 
Yeah, you're right, Jason. It really has been sort of a tale of two brothers, Eric being one of them, Don Jr. the other, Don Jr., 45 years old, the elder brother, uh, much more comfortable on the stand, uh, amiable, cracking jokes with the judge, uh, having a banter with the prosecutor, but sticking to his story, which is he relied on the attorneys and the accountants and his CPA. But as you mentioned, Eric is an entirely different story. Eric's testimony last two days, very fraught, very contentious. He doesn't remember a lot of things. He says, you know, I pour concrete. I am a developer. I'm a real estate guy. I am way, way above all of these intricate details of the finances. But he really got caught up in the details and in the um, in the evidence, the documents, the emails, the signatures. His signature is on so many documents. And he there were gotcha moments. He changed his story numerous times. First, he didn't know about the statements of financial condition. Then he said, well, maybe there were some, but I really didn't have anything to do with it. And then at the end, he said, you know what? Yes, that does look familiar, um, but it really underestimates my father's wealth. He and his brother walked out of the courtroom, both of them thumbs up. But I must say, the judge is probably going to give them a thumbs down. Adam Reese, thank you so much for laying that out and starting us off tonight on The Readout. Let's bring in Glenn Kirshner and Charles Coleman Jr., both are former federal prosecutors and MSNBC legal analysts. Glenn, I'll start with you. Um, as much as I love this sort of Kendall and Roman thing that they've got going on when they go to trial here, it seems to me like I can't tell if this is a strategy or it's just that Eric Trump doesn't know any better. Or, or, do you think that there is some sort of larger plan with the Trump brothers where one's like, I'm going to play the jerk and you're going to play the guy who's slightly more sophisticated? Are they hoping that will change the penalties and fines that they face or are they just sort of acting into their personalities? Yeah, yeah, you know, Jason, nobody will accuse these characters of being tactical geniuses because what they should have done is just plead the fifth and go home. Listen, as you already pointed out, Judge N. Goran has already ruled against Trump and company on liability. And now the question is, how much will they have to disgorge? In other words, how much of the ill-gotten gains that, you know, that they have courtesy of their fraud should they have to give back? But the other thing in the mix here is, will they be prohibited essentially from doing business in New York uh, in the future? So all I can figure is they think maybe they can talk their way out of being prohibited from continuing to, you know, work as part of the New York business world. I have a hard time believing Judge Engoron is going to fall for any of this nonsense when somebody like Don Jr. testifies that, yes, I was the certifying official. Yes, I signed my name on that document certifying that it was accurate. But I had no idea if it was accurate or not because my accountants were really the bad guys. So were you crooked or were you just so incredibly grossly incompetent and you just didn't care? Neither one of them makes for a particularly good New York businessman. <laughs> Charles, I, I take this continue with our sort of succession metaphor here. So we've already talked about uh, Kendall and Roman. Now let's talk about Shiv, Ivanka. Uh, so Ivanka Trump, the court just rejected her desire to avoid testimony because she said she is too busy to testify during the school week. And they basically said, that's nonsense. You still have to come in, even though she claimed that she would be suffering undue hardship. My question for you is, one, under what circumstances would that argument have ever actually worked? And two, 
If you look at the three children in the Trump organization, which is the one who is the most likely to cause the most damage? Is it Don? Is it Ivanka? Which one of them is most likely to cause the most damage as far as possibly raising the amount of fines, fees or penalties that they could face? Well, Jason, to your first question, the notion of not being able to testify on the basis of a hardship exception is going to require a very high standard in terms of you meeting that bar. And Ivanka Trump basically saying, hey, look, I got to get my kids from school for one day of testimony is not going to meet that. Usually you're talking about people who have extenuating circumstances who are outside of the jurisdiction and for whom it would be a serious burden to get to court and to testify. And I might add who are not essential witnesses. And so all of those things are going to be factors that play into whether a judge makes the decision as to whether to let you off the hook from testifying along with the length of your testimony. For one day in a jurisdiction you already reside in, for the reasons that you've offered, you're not seriously medically ill, something you can't come to court, you're not immobile, for example, or incapacitated for any other reason, that's not going to meet the standard that would allow a judge to excuse you from court and your testimony. Now, to your second question, I'm going to argue that Eric Trump is probably the one who's going to do the most damage with respect to this case. Don Jr. has a very particular role because he was named as a trustee for the irrevocable trust once Donald Trump became president. But it's Eric who's had the most consistent presence as part of being a part of the Trump organization. His name is on a lot of the documents. His name and his presence sort of looms largely over the organization in comparison to any of his kids. And so that's the thing that I think Don uh, and and Eric and Ivanka and Donald Trump need to be most concerned about is Eric and his testimony, which is why, in part, I believe he was so adversarial when he was on the stand testifying. Glenn, talk about adversarial. So the Trump team has decided that they're going to just keep going after uh, law clerks and, and staff members and everything else like that. Look, They've done this all along. It's not like that's new behavior from Donald Trump. It's not like that's new behavior from anybody associated with him. But I have to ask you, look, I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on TV. I've seen plenty of legal shows, though. What on earth could be the possible use of angering a judge by attacking their staff? Do they think this is going to result in a delay? Do they think that they're going to anger this judge so much and Gorin that he'll make a mistake and they can justify calling for a mistrial? What is the purpose of Trump's team attacking his clerks? Your guess is as good as mine, but I have a feeling they're using it as a distraction. They would rather people be talking about and us covering, you know, this feud that's going on between the Trump's and Trump's attorney and the judge and the judge's law clerk, then talking about the rampant fraud that was going on, you know, in the Trump organization um, and how much they are going to be made to pay. And the other thing, if I can circle back to a minute, I think Ivanka is a real potential danger because one, she's trying so desperately not to testify. That seems to be something of a red flag. But even more importantly, think back to the January 6th public hearings. When she testified, we saw the the video of her behind closed doors testimony. She said in substance, I don't believe my father's claim of fraud undermining the election. I believe Bill Barr. Boy, that was sort of Ivanka introducing her father to the undercarriage of a bus. So it may very well be that she's so desperately trying to stay out of that courtroom because if she testifies truthfully, it's really going to hurt dad and her brothers. 
She's going to leave in the limo holding hands with Jared while her two brothers are fighting in the office. Look, I, I, I see this, this trial as being part of our overall sort of analysis of how dangerous and how problematic it is that this family has been in a position of power. But I also think some of this trial is highlighting how unfit Donald Trump is. Charles, I want to play you some sound from the Gene Carroll trial deposition with Trump where the man seems not entirely clear about what's going on or who he's talking about. Get your thoughts on the other side. It's Marla. You say Marla's in this photo? That's Marla, yeah. That's, that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. Here. Carol. Oh, is that? The oh, person okay. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. I'm not shocked that Donald Trump can't keep track of the names or even the images of women that he has harassed and abused in his life. But, Charles, when, when, a, when a, somebody can't even testify as to who they've abused, I, I mean, is this something that is problematic for the lawyers? Is this something they may try to weaponize later on and say, hey, he's not even competent to stand trial? It, it, it's like Trump was, was caught three or four different women ago that he abused, and he wasn't able to figure out who he was talking about. Well, Jason, I don't think that it's going to rise to the level of competency, but I do think that if you are one of Donald Trump's attorneys, you have to really wrestle with the fact that you have a client who has essentially normalized talking out of both sides of his mouth. And he's made it sort of a point that the American public almost comes to expect it. If you think about Donald Trump, and now you are seeing both Eric and Donald borrow these talking points for the same guy who says, for example, I've had, I got the best people. I know the best words. I've been all over the places and I know all the people. He has an uncanny ability to say, I've never seen anything like this. For a guy who's supposedly seen and been everywhere, he loves to talk about how with respect to the justice system and everything that's taking place, he's never seen anything like this, the political witch hunt. And now you're seeing his children start to borrow those same talking points on the courthouse steps. And I think that that's significant because as one of his attorneys, it's very difficult to deal with a client who you don't know which client you're going to get on a given day or at a different point on a given day. And that's something that all of his attorneys in all of his cases have to contend with. Been around the world and I, I, I can't even identify the people I've victimized. Thank you so much, Glenn Kirshner and Charles Coleman Jr. Up next on The Readout. President Biden travels to Lewistown, Maine, in the wake of yet another mass shooting. I mean, concerns about how so many red flags could have been missed or ignored. The readout continues right after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden spent yet another day comforting a community ripped apart by senseless and uniquely American gun violence. In Lewiston, Maine, the President the Bidens paid their respects to the victims, met with first responders, and grieved with families and community members affected by the shootings. And once again, the President tried to provide comfort to the people who are trying to pick up the pieces of their lives. All the people of Maine, we've done, Jill and I have done too many of these. Jill and I are here, though, on behalf of the American people to grieve with you and to make sure you know that you're not alone. 18 precious souls stolen, 13 wounded. All of them live lives of love and service and sacrifice. Regardless of our politics, this is about protecting our freedom to go to a bowling alley, a restaurant, a school, a church, without being shot and killed. It was just over a week ago that Robert Card walked into two Lewiston establishments and shattered countless lives. He was found two days later after he took his own life. The victims include Bill Young and his 14-year-old son, Aaron, who went out to do some bowling, and four members of the deaf community who just wanted to play in the local cornhole competition. Sadly, Lewiston joins a long list of American communities hit hard by America's gun fetish. In roughly a year, President Biden has had to travel to Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, and Monterey Park, California, all communities that have suffered devastating losses at the hands of violent gun crime. There have been at least 37 mass killings in the United States so far this year, and we've got two months left. That has left at least 195 people dead. This is according to a database maintained by the Associated Press and USA Today in partnership with Northeastern University. While the president tried his best to help the community heal, the Republican Party absolutely refuses to do anything to address this uniquely American disease. In fact, they have promised to make access to guns easier and less regulated. People within the main community affected by this mass killing are angry about what happened and how it came to be. According to reports in May, the shooter's family reported him to the police because they were concerned about his mental health. And the 15 guns in his possession. In July, the shooter spent two weeks in treatment while at a training facility at West Point. In August, the U.S. Army determined that the shooter should have his access to weapons and ammunition restricted. In September, a reservist contacted police to report his own concerns about Card, saying that he was worried that Card was going to shoot up the Army Reserve facility. And a month later... He did what everyone thought he was going to do, which is the problem. Joining me now is Nick Saplina, Senior Vice President for Law and Policy at Every Town for Gun Safety. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Um, this, Nick, I have talked about this before. Uh, I am a professor at Morgan State University. There was a mass shooting at my school. I am intimately, intimately concerned about these kinds of issues, as are all Americans who care about not only our own safety, but the safety of others. I guess the first question I have for you is, is there any hope? We keep saying this. We say this. I could do a supercut of me talking about mass shootings in America. And every single time we get thoughts and prayers, is there any likelihood of a change after this shooting 
Or are we just going to be having the same conversation in six weeks, six months, six years? Well, you know, I think in the wake of tragedy, in the wake of another American community grieving, in the wake of another presidential visit to try to put some salve on on, on the wound, uh, it's hard to find hope. Uh, it's hard to think that things will be different this time. Uh, I will say that the progress we've made, though not the progress we deserve, um, has been really remarkable in the last 10 years. The gun violence prevention movement is standing up against a gun lobby and their allies in Congress and state legislatures to make the change that once seemed impossible and last year culminated in the most uh, significant piece of federal legislation in 30 years. But ask anybody, it's not enough. We need more. We should expect more from the elected officials uh, that are here to keep us safe. uh, And we plan to demand it uh, until they start to make the change. And Nick, one of the things that strikes me is that even if there are red flags, even if someone like Card is reported by multiple people, it's still a system where he's able to get access to the guns. Isn't the issue not whether or not People can warn folks, not not whether or not someone said, hey, he's got mental health problems. It's the fact that he had access to guns. Is it more of an access issue than a policy issue? Well, uh, yeah, I think I think it very much is both right. Uh, For one, when when are the guns going to start making us safe? Right. If if guns made us safer, we'd be the safest country in the world. Instead, we have a homicide rate that's 25 times that of our peer nations. But I really do think it's both. I, I, I think that we can look at the interventions and the failures along the way, and that's real. Uh, we can look at the policies and say policies like red flag laws are designed exactly for this situation to temporarily right. remove a firearm from somebody who poses a risk to themselves and others. Maine doesn't have one of those. And they could, and they should, and they must take action. Then there's the question of why does a man like this shooter get access to a weapon of war that can inflict dozens of deaths and injuries in a matter of minutes? Uh, And I think the answer to that question is we need to reinstate the assault weapons ban. It worked for 10 years in this country. It's time to bring it back. And then the last thing that we can do, the last name on my accountability list is the gun manufacturers that continue to profit off of selling these guns. You know, Sturm Ruger, the maker of this firearm, sold this weapon this year. There's a profit in somebody's pocket from this shooting. We never talk about the manufacturers. Tomorrow they could decide to stop making these weapons at war. They don't because they're hungry for more money and they want to sell more guns and they will sell more guns in the wake of a tragedy like this because people are afraid. And so there's a long list of accountability here. There's a long list of actions we need to take. Uh, and the time is now to take them. We don't need any more wake up calls. I want to ask you also very quickly, ProPublica has a new story out next week. The Supreme Court will decide if domestic abuse orders can bar people from having guns. Look, This seems like a no brainer, right? If you have been accused, if you have been convicted of domestic violence, if you were suspected of domestic violence, the last thing you should be allowed to do is get access to a firearm. Can we not add the Supreme Court of the United States to the list of people who we should be trying to hold accountable when it comes to America's inability to get itself off that narcotic of unnecessary and excessive amounts of guns? 
What a great point. I forgot somebody on my list. You're absolutely right. And on Tuesday, the Supreme Court's going to hear this case, the Rahimi case. And look, you know, already in the last year, uh, we have faced a, a just absolutely dangerous and, and irresponsible decision from the Supreme Court, uh, loosening the Second Amendment. This guy, Zaki Rahimi, you know, accused of domestic violence under a protective order, found with a firearm, suspected in multiple shootings. And this is the poster child for uh, the guns everywhere agenda of the gun lobby. The Supreme Court has to get this one right. Uh, we can't afford to have overnight uh, domestic abusers armed in, in 50 states across the country. We're hopeful the Supreme Court will get it right. If they don't, they got to be on our accountability list, too. And, and unfortunately, you know, time and again, this court has let us down. We're hoping that this isn't one of those times. Nick Saplina, thank you so much uh, for the work that you do and for joining us tonight on The Readout. Thank you. Coming up. Secretary of State Blinken meets with Israeli officials as calls for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza grow louder. We'll be right back. This is Jason Johnson on The Readout. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news, and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. We need to do more to protect Palestinian civilians. We've been clear that as Israel conducts its campaign to defeat Hamas, how it does so matters. It matters because it's the right and lawful thing to do. It matters because failure to do so plays into the hands of Hamas and other terror groups. There will be no partners for peace if they're consumed by humanitarian catastrophe and alienated by any perceived indifference to their plight. This is what binds us as human beings. That was Secretary of State Antony Blinken after meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu earlier today, where Blinken made the case for a humanitarian pause in the war to protect civilians. This comes as NBC News reports that top Biden administration officials have expressed, quote, growing concern about how the Israelis are carrying out their attacks on Gaza and uncertainty about whether they can be reined in. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is dire, as the Israeli Defense Forces say it has encircled Gaza City, and officials say more than 9,000 people have been killed, with the United Nations official calling Gaza a graveyard for children. There's still 240 hostages in Gaza, and in their meeting today, Netanyahu showed Blinken new video of the October 7th attack that killed 1,400 people, which Blinken said was, quote, almost beyond the human capacity to process, to digest. 
Netanyahu made it clear to Blinken that there will be no pause in the invasion until all the hostages are returned. Joining me now is NBC News correspondent Ellison Barber, who is at the Israel-Gaza border. Ellison, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, what is the latest? There is a report now about an ambulance that was struck. Uh, what do you know about that and what can you share? Yeah, so there's been a bit of back and forth there. Let me take you through what we know right now. So the Palestinian Red Crescent has just released another statement further explaining what they say happened today. We're talking about two different strikes on a group of ambulances. The Palestinian Red Crescent says there was a convoy of ambulances leaving Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. They say there were five ambulances in all. Four of them were ambulances that are owned and operated by Gaza's Ministry of Health, which by nature of working uh, inside of Gaza, that would make them a Hamas-run agency. Then one of those five ambulances is owned and operated by the Palestinian Red Crescent. According to the Palestinian Red Crescent, those hospitals were leaving, headed towards the Rafah border crossing with Egypt, with injured patients who were going to cross from Gaza into Egypt to get medical care. At some point along the way on their route, they say there was massive damage to the road they were going to be taking. And so they sort of turned around to take a different route. That's when, according to the Palestinian Red Crescent, the Israeli Air Force targeted the first ambulance in that convoy and struck them uh, from above. They say then the other ambulances started headed back to head back to Al Shiva Hospital. And then again, uh, one of the ambulances in this convoy was struck when it was at the gates of the hospital. Based on the numbers so far right now, they're saying at least 15 people have died in these attacks. Possibly as many as 60 have been injured. Israel's defense forces, they say, yes, we did strike some ambulances, but they claim that they did that because they had evidence that the ambulance was being used by Hamas militants. They released a statement saying that was their rationale for striking uh, this convoy and those ambulances. They went on to claim they would release additional information to support those claims, additional evidence. They have not yet done that. Um, they say that Hamas was using the ambulance to uh, transport weapons and that they have used it to operate out of. One thing that I do think is important to talk about, Jason, is that there was a press conference about 30 minutes before that, that convoy of ambulances left the hospital. One of our NBC News teams in Gaza was at the press conference and during that press conference, the director for Gaza's Ministry of Health said, we have a convoy of ambulances that are headed this way. This is what they're doing, and this is the route they will be taking. Then they were struck. Palestinian Red Crescent says this was absolutely beyond the bounds of a legitimate target. Back to you. NBC's Ellison Barber, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Let's bring in Elise Labatt, contributing editor of Political Magazine and senior adjunct professor at the American University School of International Service. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, Dr. Abbott, here's my, my just very basic question, and I know we are not military experts here, but it seems to me Based on what uh, Secretary of State Blinken said, is if Netanyahu, if we take him at his word, that Netanyahu's primary concern is the return of hostages taken by Hamas, how is the current strategy employed by Israel effective in getting those people returned? It would seem to me that small strike forces or, uh, you know, sort of, you know, sending people on the ground would be a much more effective way of, of returning hostages than bombing. Is, is there some part that we're missing here? Is there some sort of strategic thing that Israel is thinking about that that is beyond me, at least at this particular point? Well, there's a lot to unpack. And the, 
There are, that is a priority is the hostages, but you know, there are two priorities that the Israelis have, right? One of them is the hostages. The other is to completely gut Hamas, kill all of the leadership, destroy all their military capability. And so I think one is rubbing up against the other. And, you know, you and I might say, is that a very effective uh, policy? Is that a very effective strategy? The United States is saying to the Israelis and have been even before they went in, this is not the strategy. It's more of one that you that you've suggested, more of a surgical, more of an in and out, more very targeted um, ground strategy in terms of taking out some of these um, these targets. But at the same time, the U.S. is also giving mixed messages here to the Israelis. They're saying Israel has a, you know, Israel has the obligation to defend itself. We have Israel's back, and then they say, "Be mindful of the loss of life." I don't think. Uh, obviously, we don't know exactly what they're saying to the Israelis behind the scenes. I don't think it's a green light by any measure, but I think they're giving the Israelis a lot of leeway to how they should be think they should be fighting this campaign, even if the United States and a lot of Arab states don't think that this is the right way to go. Professor uh, Labbitt, this is the other part that, that gets me about this. The tide, if you just go by straight polling, the tide seems to be changing as far as how Americans feel about the United States support of the current strategy. And we want to make this distinction. There's a difference between having disagreements with strategy and having disagreements with a nation's right to exist or people's right. safety and concern. And, and what we're seeing now is you've got 14 Democratic senators calling for a short-term cessation of hostilities in Gaza. That is significant. That is significant. And we're not just talking about liberal senators. We're not just talking about people uh, uh, you know, who have protesters sitting outside of their offices. What is the internal pressure in the United States government doing for how Joe Biden and Blinken may be negotiating with Netanyahu? Because if, if there's not a lot of support back home, for how things are going there, you would think that would change some of the strategy or at least some of the outward rhetoric. You picked the thousand dollar question. I mean, there is a lot of pressure here at home and there has been growing even before this war. You've seen there was that progressive wing of the Democratic Party that was becoming more sympathetic to the Palestinians. Youth have become and the youth vote is very important to President Biden. And this is growing longer. And as you said, these are mainstream Democrats. And I think you can see as the administration's messages are growing stronger, that they're feeling that pressure. I mean, look, Israel seems to think this strategy is going to be what gets those hostages out, that they're going to put pressure on Hamas and Hamas is going to release the uh, hostages. That's not working. And so all these years, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said to successive American presidents, I have this domestic pressure. I have to, you know, talk to my base. You have to help me in terms of my domestic pressures. Well, right now, President Biden has a lot of domestic pressures. And the truth is that the Israelis, I don't want to say that they don't care, but they feel that this is an existential moment for them. And they're going to fight this campaign the way that they see fit. I do think, though, over the next couple of days and um, a senior administration official just briefed reporters on a call, they haven't made an agreement on this humanitarian pause that um, Secretary Blinken has been talking about. 
I think you're going to see that in the next couple of days. If you remember when those hostages were released, specifically the mother and the daughter, the Americans, mm -hmm. those were, you know, negotiated a pause so that they could get right. out safely. It can be done. And I do think that the administration is getting closer to um, getting Israel to, to agree to at least a pause. Professor Abbott, thank you so much for sharing with us what is happening all over the world, and especially in Israel and Gaza. Who Won the Week is still ahead. But first, the rampant spread of misinformation marks the lead up to important votes on abortion rights in Virginia and Ohio next week. What's being done to fight it next on The Readout. Abortion rights are at the forefront of next Tuesday's elections in two critical states. First, Ohio, with a direct abortion question on the ballot on whether to enshrine abortion rights in the state's constitution. In the final push-up to Election Day, voters have been subject to a deluge of misinformation and misleading claims about the amendment, including ads that portray it as opening gateways to children getting abortions and gender-related surgeries without their parents' consent. There's also Virginia, where control of the legislature could determine if it remains the last Southern refuge for abortion rights. For now, it's the only state in the South that has not restricted abortion access since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Joining me now to discuss is Fernand Armandi, pollster, strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, and Adrian Shropshire, executive director of Black Pack. Adrian, this is my first time getting a chance to speak with you, so we will start with you. Um, what is the significance in the state of Virginia of these upcoming elections? Because the, the, the thought that hits me is if Democrats end up being able to take one of these houses back, if they're able to take over one of these chambers, it also sort of shoots a hole in the idea that Glenn Youngkin has done a great job in Virginia. He's not going to be that middle of the road saver for the Republican Party. What's your perspective on what's at stake next Tuesday in Virginia? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think that, you know, there's been a lot of tea reading in every election uh, this cycle about what does it portend uh, for 2024. And I think that the reality is that Virginia is a, is a true bellwether, right, and has been um, for a number of years. And with the election of uh, Glenn Youngkin, um, you know, that's when we saw the first, you know, um, anti-CRT uh, debate start, right? We saw the, um, you know, book banning and attacks on black history and um, the first crazy, you know, school board meetings. So it really is kind of a harbinger for what is to come. Um, the only thing standing between a full-on MAGA agenda um, is the very slim majority that they have in the Senate right now, in the state Senate right. right now. And so that's really what's at stake. I mean, they're, you know, Republicans, since they, you know, took control um, of the, the House of Delegates, um, have really put in, in, in closed the, the closed very very, you know, the, the the majority that the Democrats have in the Senate, they've tried everything that we've seen at the federal level. They've tried abortion bans, right? right? They've restrict, tried to restrict voting rights. Um, they've uh, attacks on LGBTQ rights, everything that we've seen. And so if we see a change in the Senate, if they take control um, of the Senate, they take control uh, or they expand uh, their control um, of the House of Delegates with Glenn Youngkin sitting as the governor, right. um, we'll see right. the full-on MAGA agenda that, you know, that we're Republicans would like to be able to do and move um, at, at the federal level. Um, and that's what's at stake. Right. And it's, it's very serious and concerning. 
Uh, Fernand, I want to look at the state of Ohio. Now, this is this is kind of an interesting case to me because Ohio has been trending red the last three or four election cycles, presidential election cycles. And yet it looks like right now that the majority of the population wants abortion to be enshrined, protections for abortion access to be enshrined in the Constitution. My question isn't whether or not it's going to win or lose. My question is, why is it that Democrats have not been able to translate a crucial policy issue into more success in their state houses or at the federal level? Because it doesn't make any sense to me that in a red state, it's like, hey, the majority of people want to protect their access to abortion, but they keep voting for state legislators who are trying to take it away. Explain this to me. Jason, I think one of the issues is Democrats have got to understand that this issue of protecting abortion access is all along the lines of the issue of protecting all of the freedoms that this MAGA extremist party that is the Republican Party today wants to take away. That's why these results in Virginia and the ones you mentioned in Ohio are so critical, because depending on what happens, it's going to be, as Adrian said, yes, a harbinger. It's also going to determine how this money is spent in 2024. Remember, Sherrod Brown. Right. Democratic Senator Ohio up in 2024, if this issue is held and Democratic voters come to the polls in mass, that's going to send a strong message that the money needs to be there again for Sherrod Brown and other vulnerable states so that it's not just these Senate seats, but state legislatures, other uh, uh, races up and down the ballot are protected. The other problem here is we've had a major game change and variable change in the last couple of weeks. It's a very scary one. So let's put it on the table, honestly. Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, he's for a national abortion ban. If these issues right. come up short in both of these states, he's going to see that as a green light to go pedal to the metal and make that even more of an issue in 2024. The stakes couldn't be higher, Jason. So speaking of things going higher, let's talk a little bit about Ron DeSantis' shoes. Um, there are rumors being spread right now that the governor of your state has been wearing boot lifts uh, in order to make himself seem taller, I'm going to play a little bit of sound for you, Fermond, and, and get your thoughts on the other side, where he talks about Donald Trump and a certain kind of fetish. This is no time for foot fetishes. We've got serious problems as a country. I know uh, Donald Trump and a lot of his people have been focusing um, on things like footwear. I'll tell you this. Um, you know, if Donald Trump can summon the balls to show up to the debate, I'll wear a boot on my head. I, Fernand, <laughs> there's nothing I'm going to say that's appropriate. So what are your thoughts quickly? You know, that, that is the sound of a desperate uh, man who is always going to be a beta to Donald Trump's alpha. It doesn't matter what shoe or boot size he wears. And he knows his campaign is coming to a quick, humiliating and embarrassing end, coupled with the fact that even people in Florida, Jason, are abandoning him in mass. There's talk of resignations and uh, uh, folks who have endorsed him fleeing and switching over to Trump in the coming weeks. Fernand and Adrian are sticking around to share their picks for who won the week. That's next after this quick break. We made it. We made it to the end of another week, which means it's time to play who won the week. Back with me are Fernand Armandi and Adrian Shropshire. Fernand who won the week for you? Jason, October was such a horrible month and the events in the Middle East, mass shootings here at home, violence. All we needed really was a little love. So to the rescue, the four lads from Liverpool, John Lennon, Ringo Starr, George Harrison and Paul McCartney, by delivering the final Beatles song, 
the gorgeous Now and Then, which I, along with millions of other around the planet, got together with my family. We heard it this week. Without question, the Beatles won the week. Thank you, boys. Absolutely love it. I will have to listen to that this week. I haven't gotten to it yet. Adrian, who won the week from your perspective? So I'm going to go with New York Attorney General Letitia James um, for the case, the huge settlement that she just won for uh, Lyft and Uber drivers, $328 million in a wage theft case against the companies. Um, just a massive, another victory for American workers, I think. But these drivers are now going to get the back wages that they deserve. Um, and Letitia James is just handling the business of New Yorkers right. every single day. I'm going to do McLaughlin group wrong. I won the week. <laughs> I'm going to tell you guys I won the week. I got to interview the amazing Leslie Jones on my podcast, A Word This Week on Slate. Please check it out. She is fantastic, hilarious, amazing. Her brand new book, Leslie Effing Jones, is out now. Buy it. It is as funny as she is in person. Fernand Armandi and Adrian Shropshire, thank you so much. That's tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.